What's going on, everybody? Welcome to Grassroots Conversations. I am Evan Savage. I'm the host of the podcast, and we are a podcast that is associated with Grassroots Church in Rockford, Illinois. And I'm also the lead pastor of Grassroots. And today on the podcast, we are, be, we are going to be talking about the book of Genesis. That's our Friday podcast. That means we talk about the Bible. And we're going through this for the next uh, year and a half or so. We're going to be going through uh, different books of the Bible every Friday. We're going to be putting up a podcast that talks about a different book. And so I cannot wait to have this conversation. It's going to be a good one. So let's get to it. So the book of Genesis is our main topic today, and we are going to dive into this. I just want to do a, an overview in this podcast. If if you didn't listen to the last Friday podcast on the Bible, we gave a general overview of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, also known as the Torah. And today, I want to talk specifically, give an overview of the book of Genesis. This is one of the more misunderstood books of the Bible. It is also tends to be the kind of the focus of a lot of doubting when it comes to how people view faith and how people view Christianity or Judaism, whatever it is. People tend to always point towards the book of Genesis. So what I want to do today is I just want to talk about the a general overview of this book. I want to give you as much information as possible about this book without uh, like without flooding you with too much information that it just gets confusing. Uh, but like we talked about in the last podcast, uh, we talked about how the first five books of the Bible were actually one document. They were actually one complete document um, that feed off of each other. So one leads into another. You could kind of look at it as uh, one document with five really big chapters in there. And then each chapter is split up into certain different sections as well. Uh, the first thing I want to talk about is the authorship of Genesis, the, author, the authorship of the whole Pentateuch, but the authorship of Genesis. A lot of uh, a lot of scholars have believed, specifically into the first half of the 20th century, that Moses was the author of Genesis. Now, this has since uh, once once we find more information about things, the way scholarship tends to learn uh, work is that we find more information about documents, specifically when we talk about textual criticism of documents, we find more information about documents and then our it, it informs us to a certain degree that our views of topics or views of authorship uh, change. And so uh, towards the, the second half of the 20th century, specifically the authorship of the Pentateuch and the authorship of the book of Genesis started to shift away from Moses. And I, I, I don't think that is wrong. I don't think uh, shifting our, our understanding of who wrote Genesis away from Moses is the wrong thing to do. I think, in fact, it makes a little bit more sense of how this document became what it became. Uh, the, the date you know we could we could pinpoint dates of authorship as early as 1400 to 1450 uh, BC so you're talking 3400 years ago uh, and even as late as the 6th century 
BC when when the Israelites were were uh, driven out of uh, their homeland, driven out of the the land of Israel, and and thrown into Babylon. A lot of scholars in more recent times believe that much of the Old Testament was put together into what is known as the Tanakh, which is what, what, what we refer to in, in the Christian world as the Old Testament. They comprise the Old Testament during this time, and that there's evidence for that. That's that's not an untrue thing, and it's okay that that is the case. The one thing about um, I remember when I was in uh, seminary, the I had an Old Testament professor, uh, really great professor, uh, and I and I and I emailed him a question towards the end of the class because I'm very I, I like dates and I like to understand where things came from. And so I emailed him a question. I said, "Hey, uh, professor, um, and what is like when? When did the Old Testament become one document? When did the Old Testament become the tonic, or or when was it quote unquote canonized? In other words, when were these books put together uh, as one thing, as scripture, if you will?" And he said, "Well, there's not really a date for that. We could go to the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Uh, Septuagint means seventy. Uh, it's seventy Greek scholars translated uh, the Old Testament into Greek. And he said, well, that's that's kind of the the solidified date that we can point to because we know that by then, at the very least, by then." the Old Testament was uh, comprised and was quote-unquote canonized, which means it was uh, put together and made official. But he said more likely than not, this was it was a process over centuries, obviously, because it took, at the very least, it took a, a thousand years <laughs> to write uh, the whole of the Old Testament because there's a bunch of different authors, there's a lot of different books, prophets, timelines, things like that. And so when the Old Testament became the Old Testament officially, it wasn't until uh, maybe a a century or two or three uh, before Christ's birth. But that's that's due to a lot of the latter books, the later books in the the Old Testament not even being written by the time of David, if you will. And so, and David was the king of Israel uh, a thousand years BC. And so the when we talk about the book of Genesis and we talk about the authorship of the book of Genesis, um, it, it is, we, we are safe in saying that Moses more likely than not to use legal language, more likely than not is the author or no, less likely, should I say he is, it's less likely that Moses is the author of Genesis, but it's not out of the realm of possibility that an early form of this book was uh, comprised together and put together by somebody like Moses. Moses did not come on until the book of Exodus, as we know. In the timeline leading to the book of Exodus, we would understand that um, uh, Moses would have for sure had access to at least the stories that are found in uh, the book of Genesis. And so uh, there are a few things that, that I want to talk about. The, the book of Genesis, the, the whole Pentateuch, if you will, the first five books, are, there's really, we could honestly say that there are at least two different sources. Uh, there's upwards of four sources that, that contributed to this, and a lot of scholars have kind of settled on at least um, three sources, if you will. Uh, there's what's known as the Yahwist source. So uh, nobody knows the guy's name or the people's name. 
Uh, there's the Deuteronomist source, and then there's the priestly source. Uh, and what these sources are, are, are simply, we could see the focus of certain passages on uh, the name of Yahweh, which would have been put together by the Yahwist source, or the focus is on the priestly acts and the priestly duties, which would be the priestly source who, who wrote those down. Then there's the Deuteronomist, which the word Deuteronomy means second law. And it, that's why it follows uh, Leviticus and Numbers, because uh, it is the second law. It's the second idea. Um, and so the Deuteronomist source, which would have been the, 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 the second source of law in the, the first five books of the Bible, a lot of people believe the Deuteronomist source is also uh, kind of the source for some of the other historical documents, as in Judges and Ruth and um, the first and second Samuel. Uh, he had a hand in that as well. And so we don't know these people's names. Uh, we just kind of split apart this these documents to see, well, this is different, written differently, and it focuses on a certain thing, as in Yahweh. So we're going to call this source the Yahwist source, or this focuses a lot on the priestly idea, and so we're going to focus this on the priestly. There's also a fourth one, which is not as commonly accepted, known as the Eloist, Eloist source uh, because of the focus on the name of God, uh, Elohim. Now, this is in recent years has kind of died off a little bit, but we can actually see that source specifically in the, in the, in the second part of uh, the book of uh, Genesis. When we start to get into Abraham, there's a lot of Elohim stuff in there. Abraham refers to God as Elohim. Uh, which Elohim, the word, is actually a plural word, which means gods, uh, but uh, it was kind of taken over, <laughs> if you will, by by uh, the Israelites, the Hebrew people, uh, to refer to uh, God himself before God reveals himself as Yahweh to Moses. And so, so that's kind of where the source is. We don't necessarily know who wrote, who actually wrote down these books, uh, but we, we can almost for certain point to certain sources of where the information came from. I, w I would also like to point out that authorship does not, uh, does not take away from the truth that is found within a document. I think a lot of the, we, we place a lot of emphasis on author um, rather than the content uh, from within. And so the authorship is not something to hang your hat on. Uh, it's the content that is found within that we should. So we have to so just review, we have the Yahwist, the Deuteronomist, and the priestly sources, and then some people believe in a fourth source known as the Eloist source. The structure of uh, the book of Genesis is really split into two large sections. We have Genesis 1 through 11, which is one section, and then Genesis 12 through 50, that's a, a much larger section, but that's the second section. Genesis 1 through 11 is uh, generally known as the, 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 the history or the prehistory of humanity, and Genesis 12 through 50 focus, focuses specifically on one family. It's the story of Abraham and his descendants. Uh, these descendants are known as the patriarchs of uh, the Israelites. So they are the founders of Israel. Uh, through Abraham, we get uh, Isaac, then we get Jacob, and Jacob had 12 sons, and those 12 sons eventually become 
uh, the tribes of Israel with Joseph, who is not a tribe of Israel. So he technically had 13 sons, as we understand, uh, when it comes to the story of probably had more, but the, um, but the 12 tribes of Israel come from the line of Abraham known as the patriarchs, if you will. Now, the first section of this, of the book, uh, the, the history of humanities is, is the most interesting. You know, I like 12 through 50 to be honest with you, but, but one through 11 is actually a really interesting, uh, set of stories, uh, because this is in and of itself split up into, uh, five different sections, uh, there, and this is where we can kind of understand where different authors would come into play. When you start to see different sections and different modes of writing, uh, that's where you can kind of pinpoint specifically when you talk about ancient documents and ancient Hebrew document documents, uh, where you can pinpoint different authors. But the first section of the book of Genesis is actually, I, I find it very, very interesting and, and really enjoyable to learn about. Uh, we have, so the five different sections are essentially this. Genesis 1 is the beginning, the creation story. Genesis 2 and 3 is humanity and its problem, uh, known as sin. Uh, Genesis 3 through 5 sets up Noah through the line of Cain and, and the destruction that Cain has caused in the world. And uh, it sets up Noah and the story of Noah really well. Six Six through nine is the story of the flood. Uh, we have three chapters dedicated to that, and I'll, I'll get to that. That's a really interesting uh, story, how it's laid out in and of itself. And then chapters 10 and 11 is what is known as the history of nations, how nations were formed and how people uh, became different languages and things like that. And so Genesis 1, uh, we talked about uh, being uh, the, the, the story of creation. This is, a lot of times we tend to think that everything in Scripture, uh, in Genesis 1, is a great example of this and the arguments for and against uh, the, the, the accuracy of Genesis 1. We tend to look at Scripture as needing 100% to be factual documents. Last time, last podcast, we talked about the difference between fact and truth. And we talk about Genesis 1 as needing, uh, as a foundation of our faith, to be needing uh, to be a factual document. The truth of the matter is, is that uh, the way it was written, in the way Genesis one was written, it was never meant to be one hundred percent fact. It was, it was meant to tell a story and to tell a larger truth, but put it into terms in which the people of the time and we, as modern people, can understand a greater truth. And so, the way to do that, a lot of times, what happened, especially in in, in Eastern or not Eastern, in, in ancient Near Eastern uh, 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 cultures was to do this in poetic form, to to speak poetically. The book of Job is a great example of this. Uh, the book of Job, uh, which we'll get to in a few weeks, but the book of Job is um, arguably the oldest book of the Old Testament, but it is also uh, the one of the earliest forms, if not the earliest form of epic poetry that we have. It is a story, it's a poem that is meant to teach us a greater truth. Genesis 1 falls completely into this category. If you read Genesis 1, you will see, you will, you will recognize immediately, if you're looking out for it, you will recognize immediately the poetic structure, even in the English language. Uh, the way it is formatted in most Bibles is in a poetic form. 
It is different from narrative form. So it's not a narration. It's not a story as much as it is a poem describing a greater truth or a greater, yeah, a greater truth. And so we, we, we arrive to this conclusion that Genesis 1 truly is, it's about two different truths, if you will, or yeah, two different truths. The first truth is that God created all things. God is the source of creation. He is the source of the universe, source of life, source of all things seen and unseen. God is the creative power behind all things. So that's the first truth. The second truth is that creation in and of itself is good. It is a good creation. And the reason why this poem is included and the the reason why it is, we need to understand that is because uh, during the time that that this book and this poem would have been uh, understood and that people would have understood God and his work in the world is that it was amongst a culture of people that one saw uh, the creation of the world or the creation of the universe come out of calamity, uh, come out of two gods fighting, and then they use the flesh and bones of one god to create all things. And so it comes out of uh, kind of turmoil and calamity in and of itself. That's the first thing. And the second thing, uh, it, the reason for goodness and why creation is good and why God uh, created all things for goodness is a complete contrast to how the world used to look at things. The earth was always bad. The earth was the source of turmoil we, we struggled to plant, we struggled to farm, we struggled to eat, we struggled to survive. It was just a struggle to be on earth. There were wars and all these other things. And so this really takes us back to the, to, to the intention of the creator God, is that no, this earth isn't bad, and I did not form it out of a calamity with another uh, deity, but I myself, this is God, God himself created all things out of his own goodness for good, that the earth is good, the universe is good, and all things are good. And that's what the poem is about, the goodness of creation. The first truth, again, is that God created. The second truth is that it is good. We see the, the phrase, it is good, or it is very good, at the, at, the end of the, at the end of the first chapter. We see this over and over and over again. There's a reason why it's repetitive. Uh, uh, ancient writers used words purposefully. And so it was good is, is a purposeful statement. It's not, it's not the creation of the flowers necessarily that's purposeful or the trees or the moon or the sun. It's the truth that it is good. It was created for goodness and that we as creatures, as human beings should relish and should understand that goodness. Did I say relish? Oh, well. We, uh, but yeah, we, we should understand that goodness. We should love that goodness and we should rest in that goodness and understand that God's sole initial purpose for all things is good. And so we have Genesis 1, two truths that God created and it is good. Genesis 2 and 3 is really the story of humanity, the, the, the story of uh, obviously Adam and Eve in the garden, or Adam and then Eve in the garden, and the story of the fall of man, Adam and Eve. Uh, at, the, at the point of Genesis 3, uh, Eve does not have a name. She's just known as the woman for much of Genesis 3. But so Adam and the woman, if you will, uh, uh, 
they, they eat the fruit of the tree, and then this causes a whole slew of problems. And so Genesis 2 and 3 really paint a picture um, of the human condition at its very core. Uh, and I like to use Genesis, the fall of man, Genesis chapter 3, as an idea of, a lot of people bring up the question, first of all, a lot of people bring up the question of, of why would God even give them the option, right? Why would God even give them the option to do this? Why would God even plant a tree and set, tell them not to, to eat of this tree? Why not just not plant the tree to begin with? We see it, the, the purpose is uh, really the tree kind of represents uh, uh, the human issue, if you will, the, 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 the human condition, as many people refer to it. It is this idea that, that, that we built inside of us the goodness of humanity the goodness of being created in the image of God requires that we have choice. It requires that we are able to choose God or ourselves. And um, because we are made in that image, we have uh, a natural drive to choose ourselves over God. You see, the choice there, the reason why God gave that choice as the tree, the tree represents a choice. We either choose ourselves or we choose God. This is the, the, the reason why the serpent is there. A lot of people call the serpent Satan, but there's no textual evidence that's not even written in Genesis chapter 3. Uh, we just know that the serpent was, was a, a cunning being, more cunning than all the other beings in creation. Uh, a tempter, if you will. And so uh, there's also some other uh, cool things about uh, ideas about the serpent and that the serpent in other faiths, especially when this was written written down or comprised or canonized, however you want to see it, um, when, this, when this story was written down, that all these other faiths tended to worship a serpent. And so the serpent represents a falsehood of faith, a false faith, if you will. And uh, the, the God represents the true faith, the faith that, that sets us free all said and done. And so Genesis 2 and 3 are the story of humanity, the, the origin of humanity, and the story of the human condition, this idea that we want to choose ourselves over God constantly. And we do this every day. The, the fruit is, we, we choose to eat the fruit of the tree on a daily, if not hourly basis, right? Um, we choose ourselves over others. We choose ourselves over God. This is why uh, the ancient Hebrew people would pray the prayer, the Shema, which is love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then uh, eventually this added into it, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus uh, expounded on this by saying the whole of the law, the whole of the point of creation hangs on these two commands, to love God with everything you are and to love your neighbor. It's this idea that selfishness creeps in, the, the fruit is the selfishness that creeps in, and the choosing ourselves or our own will over God's. Now, God had to, to have free thinking and free loving people had to give the choice. He had to give the choice uh, to choose themselves over God, or else they would never truly understand what the, what the power and the mighty love of God looks like. We would have never been able to understand truly the grace and love of God if we did not understand first and foremost what it looks like to live without that grace and love in the first place. And so we tend to look at the, the fall of man 
as a as a super negative in in chapter three, we tend to look at it. Oh, if only they didn't eat from the fruit. But in reality, like that was inevitable. They were going to do that, and God had planned for that uh, in and of itself. And so uh, it was kind of a ne- the definition of a necessary evil, if you will. And the tree evil, the word evil is not even used yet. Uh, the tree, the knowledge of good and evil, as we know it, is actually tov and ra which means good and bad, good and bad choices, if you will. And then we get to uh, Genesis chapter 3 through 5, and these are this is the story of Cain and Abel. Cain kills his brother Abel, and then it's a story of Cain's descendants and how they're a little bit murderous and pretty evil, and uh, they, they, they are the creators of wickedness in the Bible, true evil, if you will. Um, and this is really just a setup Noah. Um, and the, probably the most interesting story in this uh, first section of Genesis is the story of Noah. Uh, I think a lot of times, this is another one of these more controversial uh, statements or a controversial, excuse me, story in uh, the old in the Old Testament or in the whole of the Bible, but specifically in the book of Genesis itself. The the idea of uh, a worldwide flood uh, without archaeological, without a ton of archaeological evidence uh, on parts of the world that this ever happened, um, really, really roused people up. The The very idea that did the flood happen, did the flood not happen, what's the, like, what's true, right? Again, it comes back to, or what is fact? It comes back to this difference of truth and fact. Now, there is uh, some archaeological evidence or geo- geological evidence of some sort of Near Eastern, uh, Middle Eastern uh, cataclysmic flood that happened in certain parts. And so there is evidence of some sort of flood that happened. But whether it was worldwide, who knows? The truth, again, the truth is not found in the flood itself. The truth is found in the greater point of the story. Now, uh, G- Genesis chapter 6 through 9 is uh, a, a great example of Hebrew literature and how he- the Hebrew people, early Hebrew people, ancient Hebrew people, l- uh, liked to uh, uh, write down their stories or like to... Uh, structure their stories, if you will. Uh, a lot of times you, you will find evidence of mirrorism in stories. The greatest example of this that we could see really easily is the book of Jonah. The The first uh, the first few chapters of Jonah mirror the last few chapters of Jonah. They almost are uh, uh, exact replicas of each other with a different point, if you will. Uh, the story of of, of Noah does the exact same thing. Chapters six through nine really are, uh, they, they mirror, uh, chapter six mirrors chapter nine, so on and so forth. And this is the way the story is laid out. It begins with a genealogy that leads to Noah, and then cataclysm is declared, right? So God declares a catechism, or a, a cataclysm, not a catechism, a cataclysm. And then they enter the ark, and then the flood rises. This is kind of the, the pinnacle of the mountain, and then the flood recedes, and then they leave the ark, and then God declares something else, but this time it's not a cataclysm, it's a promise or a covenant, and then there's another genealogy. And so you could see, if you were to write these down and 
put them in order, you would be able to see that one, let me let me count these, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. So one mirrors eight, two mirrors seven, three mirrors six, and four and five mirror each other. So there's this mirroring uh, story that happens in the flood story. And this kind of gi- this gives evidence of a couple of things from the text, from the structure of the text itself is, is one, uh, not necessarily that the flood as it is written down is, again, we're going to talk about fact, that the flood and the story of the flood is fact, but that there is a greater purpose in this. Um, last week I talked about how this this first part of the book of Genesis is a great example of what uh, people understand or as scholars understand as myth. Myth is not an untrue story. In fact, it is a very true story, but that uses symbolism and uh, uh, author, you know, authorship, the way authors write things as, as ways to get to a greater truth. The fact of the matter is, is that there are other flood stories from other faiths all throughout the land around that come from about the same time. In the story of the flood, all said and done is a story about how uh, how the God of Israel, the God of Israel, is different from the gods of other faiths. And the the story of the flood is how God, the God of Israel, is a God who redeems. So, uh, in in the other stories, is that a God who destroys? Like the Epic of Gilgamesh or other, or other uh, flood stories as well, the this idea that that God declared that He was going to send a great flood to to wipe clean the earth to start anew, if you will, uh, which is mirrors how other stories do it. But in this case, God saved humanity, saved the family. Uh, through the person of Noah by telling him to build an ark and telling him to save animals and telling him to get his wife and his kids and his and his son's wives all his whole family to get them onto the ark so that they could start anew it's this idea of redeeming humanity as opposed to the other stories which was really that uh, like Gilgamesh for instance had to say oh no I'm going to build a boat because uh, the gods are going to kill or gods are going to kill everybody, and I just want to save my family. So the other stories are really about survival, uh, going against God, whereas this is God redeeming. So the the mythos or the mythology of the story of Gen- of the story of uh, the flood, is about not necessarily the flood, but it's expounding on this idea of God's redemption. And this goes through all the whole story, the, uh, chapters 1 through 11, is a story about God, uh, people doing bad things, and God redeeming. Whether it's Adam and Eve doing something bad and God clothe, clothing them and covering their shame, or Cain killing Abel and God protecting Cain and Cain's life, or people doing great evil and God wanting to wipe the face of the planet, but God saving humanity through Noah, or we get to chapters 10 and 11, which is the history of nations, 
and how they wanted to build a great city and they wanted to build a great tower so that they can make their own name great. And so God says, no, 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 you're not the source of making your name great. I am the source of making all things great. And so therefore God dispersed all people in chapters in chapter 11, made them speak different languages, made them build different cultures so that they can never think selfishly about themselves again. And then we get to chapter 12, and the whole book takes a massive turn. It goes from a general history, not but history not in the sense of, of, of factual history, but a general understanding of the history of humanity, to focusing on this one particular family uh, that is the patriarch is Abraham, or Abram, as he's known in, in chapter 12. And the cool thing about this, right at the beginning, God calls Abraham out of his land. And in chapter 11, in the people, chapter 11, where the people said, I want to make my own name great, God tells Abraham in chapter 12, I will make your name great and I will make you a blessing for all nations. And so chapter 12 through 50 is the story of Abraham and his family and how through Abraham, uh, the Israelites will, one, uh, get to Egypt. How do the Israelites get into Egypt, which eventually leads to slavery? And two, how do how how does this actually build a nation? The story of Abraham is simple. He and Sarah, their husband and wife, uh, Sarah cannot have kids. And so God promises Abraham a child, Abraham and Sarah, a child of their own. Now, Abraham had other children with other people. Um, but it was, it was, it was this marriage between he and Sarah that, that where the line would come from, God promised he and Sarah, a white, a child, and it would be through this child that the nation of Israel would be born. Now we know that, that Abraham eventually, uh, lays with, if we want to use proper terms, (laughs) lays with Sarah's, uh, you know, maid essentially, and they, and they and she gives birth to Ishmael, and then eventually Sarah, Sarah Abraham's actual wife, Sarah, uh, becomes uh, pregnant with their son Isaac. And uh, th- this is another redemption story where we see that that Ishmael, the, you know, he and his mom, they're, they're sent out away from Abraham and Sarah, but that God still protects them, and God still promises that He's going to make Ishmael into a great nation Himself. Now, the through Isaac we get to uh, Jacob and Esau, and Jacob, uh, Jacob is really the line that is chosen eventually. Now, the funny thing is Jacob deceives his father, and uh, into thinking that he is Esau, who is the older of the brothers, to inherit all things. And it's through that deception that you know Isaac was blind and couldn't see well. And it's through that deception that uh, that 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 Jacob became the inheritor of all, all of, uh, Isaac's stuff. And so Isaac, uh, becomes this, uh, or Jacob, excuse me, becomes the, the, the father of the nation of Israel has a bunch of kids, 13 kid 13 boys to be exact, but 12 of them become the tribes of Israel, uh, through this. Uh, but one of them was born a little bit later. But his initial 12 kids, uh, one of them was Joseph, who was his favorite child. And Joseph uh, becomes uh, kind of, he, 
you know, becomes blessed from God with visions and dreams and things like this. And it's all about how Joseph is going to be uh, kind of a powerful person, uh, a, a kind of a political force, and that how all of his family is going to bow down to him. And naturally, as brothers do, his brothers did not like that. <laughs> and so his brothers sold him off into slavery, pretended like he was dead. And uh, Joseph moves into Egypt and becomes uh, kind of a high political figure in Egypt and works with directly with the Pharaoh, uh, the king of Egypt. And then he, uh, eventually his brothers come back and they ask him during a famine if, if they would uh, be, if, 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 if he could be helpful. And eventually they realize, oh, this is, Joseph reveals himself as, as their brother. And this is what brings the Israelites eventually into the land of Egypt. And then we get from here, we get into the Exodus story. Now, the one thing I want us to understand about all of the things that we talked about today, I want, I would encourage you to read the book of Genesis uh, front to back. It's 50 chapters. It'll take you, it's, it's a little bit long. There's uh, some genealogies in there, uh, which if, if you've ever read the Bible, the most boring parts are the genealogies and the laws and things like that that you have to get through. But the stories are truly fascinating. They're fascinating Story. So I would encourage you to to uh, read the book of Genesis. Take some time out of your out of your week and out of your days to to read through the book of Genesis. Chapters one through eleven go really quickly. You could easily do that in a sitting. And then I would just go uh, generational when it comes to Abraham. Uh, and the one thing, and the one thing I forgot about Abraham is that there are a lot of. Uh, before we end off here today, there are a lot of uh, pointings towards Jesus in the story of Abraham. Obviously, we know from out of Abraham, eventually, uh, Jesus is from that long line of people. But we get to this interesting story of Abraham and Isaac uh, onto a mountain. Uh, and, and God uh, commands Abraham to take his son Isaac onto a mountain and to sacrifice his son. Now, Abraham, obviously, this is the one son that, that he and Sarah have always wanted. And you could, you could kind of see and feel the heartbreak in the story of Abraham uh, when, when in, in Genesis. And how uh, this is truly, you could see the heartbreak. Like, God, why would you give this son to me and then ask me, to deliver him back to you. And really this kind of just points towards, and eventually as the story goes, Abraham takes his son Isaac up to the mountain and Isaac asks, hey, if we're going to do a sacrifice up here, um, we don't have a goat. <laughs> we don't have a sheep or anything to do this. And Abraham says, God will provide. And they set up the altar and he lays Isaac down on there and, and, and he's about to sacrifice Isaac before God steps in and stops him. And because of his faithfulness, as the story goes, because of Abraham's faithfulness, we see that uh, the kind of the redemption story begins to unfold, that now it's going to be God himself who's going to have to sacrifice his own flesh uh, in order to redeem all of humanity. The funny thing about uh, Isaac at this in this instance is that a lot of people believe, and, and, and this is not untrue, but a lot of people believe uh, that Isaac was around the age of 35. Could you imagine that? Like we tend to think of Isaac as a child, uh, but at this time, really, he was probably around the age of 35 or so. And so this would have been a different, uh, it, it, the conversation shifts a little bit when you start to think of it in that terms. Uh, but I hope this was helpful to you when you, when you start to read the book of Genesis, I can encourage you, I encourage you to read the book of Genesis and, and ask God to reveal to you, uh, uh, 
the deeper truths that are found within these texts. So one thing that the reason why we do this is not so that I could just give you a bunch of facts uh, about these books or a bunch of theology things about these books. I want us to understand there's a difference between being able to quote scripture and then to be able to know scripture. And when we truly know scripture, we could truly, it begins to open up a whole new world of understanding of God and his work in the world. So I hope that this was enjoyable to you. And I cannot wait to, to talk about Exodus. We're gonna talk about Exodus next time. And so I look forward to it. And until next time, we'll see you later. Mm-hmm.